Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Valley Baptist Church. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open up to... made a little bit of a change. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can find that spot. You can go there. Uh, also, we'll be starting in Luke chapter 23. So you can kind of bookmark those two spots. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to, to kind of begin with. I'll try to make this as painless as possible, uh, working through the story. Uh, but this is an important story. The resurrection of Christ changed human history. The fact that we have Sundays is the first day of the week, that the, really the calendar, when we come into you know, 2012, it says the year of the Lord. That's like on any college diploma. And so today, as we get into this story, my prayer is that God would help the story to come alive and that I'd be able to teach it in a way that makes sense and that you would have clarity over what happened. So let's pray. Father, we come to you and I just ask, Lord, for help. Lord, I pray that as we work our way through the the gospel account of the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Lord, I pray that you would help us to answer the question, so what? What's the big deal? What does this matter to me? Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to see this in a fresh new way. Whether we're still seeking, whether we're skeptic, whether we've accepted Christ and have walked with you for many years, Lord, I pray that you would help the story to come alive, help us to to see the significance of it in a new way. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So what's Easter all about? I kind of, I'm going to kind of give you the answer up front before we work at the story. Easter is about the resurrection of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first four verses lay out in clear terms what the gospel is. Paul writes this. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you received in which you also stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul begins, see, anytime you read anything out of first or second Corinthians, you have to remember that this church that this letter was addressed to was a mess One pastor I heard say, and it's cracked me up ever since, is that the church in Corinth made Las Vegas seem like a homeschool convention. They were absolutely out of control. And at the very end of his letter, this we know it as 1 Corinthians, but we know from 1 Corinthians that Paul had written other letters that just God didn't want to save his scripture because he was probably a little too frustrated, in my opinion. And so he says, I want to take you back to the basics of the gospel. I've preached it to you. This is what you stand in. This is your faith. And in verse 3, what he says is, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So that's the gospel, that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again. And Paul says twice in there that it was according to the scriptures. Now at the time of writing, what were the scriptures? We think Old and New Testament. At the time, it was just the Old Testament, the scriptures. This is very much Christianity is judaism like there's so much jewishness in the scriptures that we as american christians we fail to understand and so the big picture of human history starts at the beginning of the bible and if you have any problem with god you're going to have a problem with the first few verses of the bible it says in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth the word continues to explain the first six days of human history that god created everything when it was finished it was good God created humanity with free will, free choice. We had the ability to love or to reject him. A very dangerous situation for God to kind of create. But in order to have a creature that could truly love, they had to be able to reject. We're not just merely robots. And in Genesis chapter 3, there's the story. It's not a fictitious story. It's a true story. We read the story where Eve ate of the fruit. She was tempted by Satan. She ate of the fruit. She talked her husband into eating the fruit, and they got in trouble. We're paying the price still to this day. 
I don't know if I can say I was cursing Adam yesterday in church. But I was very upset at Adam yesterday because I was weed whacking all day. (laughs) Weed whacking is a result of sin. (laughs) We toil the earth. There were not weeds before the fall. I mean, I was, I mean, this is the downside of Valley Center. I hate seeing, I concrete is so attractive to me these days. I just want to concrete the whole earth up so that we would, that they'd find a way up. And so there, when they ate of the fruit, sin entered the world. Humanity's DNA changed and we became sin. God is holy. So there's this separation. You might have a hard time. With the basic concept, like Christianity 101, is that man is basically bad. We like to say man is basically good. That generally speaking, we're good. Now, I'm going to, I'm a little, this, sometimes the second service gets a little different from the first service. And I had a thought, and it's always dangerous when I have a thought. And I thought, ah, I'll open up to them. I'll let them into my psyche a little bit. I have a confession to make. I love the 80s. Like, I love the 80s. I was born in the 70s, but the 80s, I got an amen over there. Like the 80s, like the middle to like the late 80s, you get the best of the 70s like bled over, and then the 90s was starting to creep in. And I just love that era. And it works itself out when I exercise. Like when I go for a run with Pandora, I've entered in a song Pandora, you can create your own thing. I'm not going to share you what the song is. But if you like the 80s, this song like taps into Pandora's like best of the 80s. And I love it. And I was running this week down the Valley Center Trail. And a song popped up from this radio station that I created. And this is going to kind of give a little bit away. But the song by Billy Joel, We Didn't Start the Fire. That song is hilarious. I mean... But I'm listening to it, thinking about humanity, and it dawned on me what he's singing about. Like, I have to, I haven't, I got the words in between the services, but I forgot to look up what, what year it came out. But it's somewhere in the 80s, I'm sure, probably early 80s. And I'm listening to the things he's singing about, and I'm like, man, he could, he could do a modern version of today. Like, virtually nothing has changed. And I bet if I asked Billy Joel if he thought humanity was basically good or basically bad, he would probably say basically good. But listen to some of the words. I hate reading songs because you want to sing them. But then then it's really bad when I start singing because I don't do that. But so some of the things, you know, he, he's kind of like singing it really fast. You'll get it stuck in your head. You know, Bay of Pigs invasion, British, British Beatlemania. Uh, Pope Paul, Malcolm X, JFK blown away. What else do I have to say? Ho Chi Minh, Richard Nixon back again, Moonshot, Moonshot, Woodstock, Watergate, Punk Rock, Begin, Reagan, Palestine, Terror on the Airline, Ayatollah, Ayatollahs in Iran, Russians in Afghanistan, Wheel of Fortune, Heavy Metal, Suicide, Foreign Debts, Homeless Vets, AIDS Crack, Bernie Getz, Hypodermics on the Shores, it's got to be New Jersey. It doesn't say New Jersey, but that's just kind of what I'm, you know. <laughs> China's under martial law, rock and roller, roller cola wars. I can't take it anymore. Then what does he say? We didn't start the fire. It was always burdened since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. No, but when, okay, let's see. This is what I'm trying not to sing and read, but we didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it but we tried to fight it we didn't start the fire but when we are going how does he sing this i can't even read it but when we are all when we are gone will it start to burn it will it start to burn on and on and on and on Uh, but he's he's this awesome observation of humanity totally a mess but what does he say like adam That wife you gave me made me eat the fruit. We didn't start this mess. But it's going to keep on going on as long as people are there. And in Genesis 3 verse 15, God God makes the promise to Satan after he did this. He said, day is coming that through this woman's seed, speaking of Jesus, 
He's going to crush your head, but you'll bruise his heel. Foretelling of the cross. Then in Genesis chapter 12, this great promise is given to Abraham, known as the Abrahamic covenant, that through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your descendants. And then we see this constant unfolding, this promise that God gave Israel that all humanity would be saved through Christ for those who believe. And so when Paul in verse three, I'm like, how did I get on that? We didn't start the fire. <laughs> First Corinthians verses chapter 15, verses three and four, twice in there, when Paul starts talking about the gospel in hindsight about the death, burial and resurrection, he says twice According to the scriptures, all through the Old Testament, there is prophecy stating that the Messiah would come. He would live. He would die. He would be crucified. And it blew the Jewish people for a loop. And we will see it today. Verse five of first Corinthians chapter 15. Paul, who's writing this, he was a leading scholar. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the. He was the most elite. He studied under Gamaliel, who was, Gamaliel doesn't mean much to us. He was the most elite rabbi to study under Gamaliel. There were only a handful of people that were selected to study under this rabbi. Paul was, he was of the upper echelon in Judaism. He was poised to end up being the leader of the Jewish council uh, for the Jews. He was killing Christians. He was killing those that said that Jesus rose from the grave. But in verse 5, before we get there, when he starts talking about the resurrection, he can hear all of us that say, dead people don't rise from the grave. I'll give that to you, because dead people don't rise from the grave. When you're dead, you're dead. I've seen all kinds of dead people. They don't come. You might think for a little bit that you think you see their chest breathing, but when they're dead and certain signs start taking place, and certainly after a couple days, dead is dead. There's no way around it. And Paul's like, I know what I'm saying is crazy. Trust me, I killed a bunch of the Christians. I persecuted them. I used to think just like you. But in verse 5, he says, and he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. And then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Most of all, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. He appeared to James. That's Jesus's little brother who wanted nothing to do with the claims of Jesus. He didn't believe he rejected Jesus's claims, but everything changed at the resurrection and James became a leader of the early church. Then to all of the apostles who all of them, except for John, gave their lives professing that Christ rose from the grave. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And Paul's life was changed forever on the road to Damascus. But in this story, as Paul's writing, as he's teaching of the resurrection that Jesus rose from the grave, he said that he appeared to all of these people. And if you doubt, most of them are still alive and they would be more than happy to talk with you. You can go talk to them, investigate them, see the claims that they're making, and then you decide. One of those people was Luke. We're going to Luke chapter 23. Luke is not a Jewish man. He's one of the only writers of the New Testament that is not Jewish. He was a doctor. I believe he encountered Paul on one of Paul's early missionary journeys. As he walked with the disciples, his vocation sort of changed. I think he patched them up quite a bit because they had they took plenty of beatings. They got sick plenty of times. And so he was kind of like their personal physician. But through his journey, he started to research and study and question them about what happened. And history today not only records Luke as a physician, but as a historian. He wrote most of the New Testament. If you take the quantity of Luke and Acts placed together, huge. He was long-winded. He probably was a pastor also. <laughs> and in the beginning of Luke, in the first few verses, he says, 
I researched, I investigated, I talked to those who witnessed the things of Jesus. Tradition holds that he interviewed Jesus' mother, Mary, he, all of the apostles that were alive. He was detailed. And he tells us in Luke chapter 1, I think it's in the third and fourth verse, he says that the reason that he's writing these books is that we would know the exact truth about the things that happened. He makes it very clear. The writing we have is not just sloppily thrown together. And so I have here that we're going to start in Luke 23, 44, which is kind of in the midst of the crucifixion. But I want to kind of ease into things because I have pictures. And in verse 33, Jesus makes his way to the place where he's going to be crucified. And in Luke chapter 23, verse 33, we read, When they came to the place called the skull or Golgotha, which means the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Now, what I want to show you, these two, these two pictures on the left, if you make the trip to Israel in the spring next year, you'll go to the place where they, they can't confirm, but it's possible where they think that Jesus's tomb could be. They can't tell that nobody will say, we don't know. The problem is if there was a body, we'd know. Ah, but he's risen. Remember (laughs) no body. Christianity would totally be done with. If they just had the body, it'd be simple to disprove. So there's the tomb where they think there's evidence of why they think that could actually be the place. A short journey from there is this hill. Golgotha. If you look closely in the room, you can kind of see the indentation. It kind of looks like a school. You get there and you're like, whoa, makes sense why they call that place Golgotha. <laughs> right out from the gate of the city, probably, I don't know, 500 yards is this spot. Likely at the base of this hill, not on top of it, is where the executions happen. We don't know. But so the place of the school. Get back to the text here. Picture's cool, though, so I thought I'd just show it to you. I like the Bible because you can actually go to places and it's all verified. So we'll start at verse 44. We read, it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is the middle of the day. Three hours elapsed. All of a sudden, while Jesus is on the cross about to die, it gets dark. Middle of the day. Because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. This is the veil of the holiest of holies in the temple, which is a stone's throw away from this location. Earthquake happened. The veil, which where the presence of God dwelt while Jesus is on the cross, right before he's about to die. Earthquake happens. It goes dark. This veil that kept people out of the presence of God is torn in two. Verse 46, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and, and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. So as Jesus dies, all of this stuff, those that walked with Jesus to some 80 miles from Galilee, they're standing there watching who they thought the Messiah was being killed. The centurions, those that were not the centurion, the soldiers who are there responsible for executing him, they were professionals. The Romans knew what they were doing. The storm was developing. It got dark. They wanted to speed things up. The Sabbath had happened. The two guys on the right and left had not died yet. And so a way to speed it up, the crucifixion, you actually die by suffocation. As you're there, in order to breathe, you have to stand up on the nails to get a breath. And then you fall back down. And at that point, your lungs are collapsed. And the only way to get a piece of uh, some air is to stand up. And eventually, as you're scraping your back up and down the, the cross... You could no longer do it and you'd be stuck in the down position and you would essentially drown to death in your lungs. To speed up the process, what they would do is they would take something and they would shatter the legs of the person on the cross so they were unable to hoist themselves up anymore. 
and they would die quicker. The Romans were excellent executioners. They came to Jesus and they said, he's dead. There's no need to break his legs. But in order to verify, what we're going to do is we're going to take a pokey thing, stick, whatever, stake, spear, probably says, I just make up terms along the way. They took something pokey. And they stabbed him between his ribs so it would pierce into his lungs. And the fluid that had accumulated in his lungs at death burst out and there's blood and water there. It was clear he was dead. But these guys that did it, all the crowds, they recognized that this just wasn't a man. They'd executed thousands of people. Most people you execute, the world just doesn't come to a stop with the, the sun being blocked. Something was different was going on. They walked away beating their breasts because something bad had happened. In verse 50, we read a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council and a good, righteous man. See, don't get into the, the Jews killed Jesus. We all killed Jesus. It was a part of God's plan. And this man who was a leader of the council, he opposed the situation. He's a Pharisee. He's, he's a leader in the council. We learned that he is a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He died. This man did not consent to the things that had happened. He was a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy man. Jesus was killed, and and who knew what they were going to do with the body? He said, you know what? I'm from around here. I have a lot of money. In fact, I have a, a, a tomb. I've paid for it. It's for my wife and I, my family. I mean, this is a big room. This could be the location. We don't know. But, it, but this at least gives you the idea. In this rock wall, they would have carved out a room. And he says, I want to take the body and I'm going to bury it. Now, we, we skim over this. I serve on the Valley Center Board of Directors, like the, the cemetery's Board of Directors. Everybody's dying to be on that job. Paching. <laughs> I don't exactly know what a, what a grave site costs because I haven't, you know, I haven't bought mine. I'm VA. I'll let the government pay for mine, you know, for my service. But I think it's about 2000 bucks for a plot. Maybe two to four. If you get a double job or something, you know, you want to go down. So let's just say $5,000. Let's pretend this is real world day to day. Some criminals executed up on the cross or however that it's done. He's going to go down to the medical examiner's office, and eventually, if nobody claims him, then he'll just be whatever happens at that point is just kind of taken care of. And one of us sees this, and we say, you know what? I have two plots at the cemetery. I want to get his body down. I'll give him the burial. I'll pay for it. He can have my land that I've purchased. And once Jesus went into this tomb to be buried, that tomb's off limits to his family. You can't be, you can't be buried in other people's family tombs. So this guy does a huge thing. He goes to Pilate and says, Pilate, he's dead now. His sentence has been fulfilled. Can I have his body so that I could give him a proper burial? He's paid for whatever. He, didn't, he, he had no crime against him, which Pilate knew. Pilate says, yes, take the body. And in verse 53, we see he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. Because he couldn't be laid in another person's tomb. He had, a, he had to have a fresh tomb unless it was his own family's. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The Sabbath is about to happen. The sun's setting in order to get ready for the Sabbath. And this just wasn't a Sabbath. For regular Sabbaths, there was a lot of work to be done. This was the Passover. Huge celebration. If you go to Israel today and see Jerusalem right now... With Easter week and the Passover happening simultaneously, it is overwhelming. It's one of the biggest parties that's thrown. There was all kind of work to get done. Because when people throw parties, they want more than coffee and goldfish. That's all I need. I probably go for Doritos sometimes, you know, coffee and Doritos. That work for me. Or a box of MREs. I'm good to go. But most people want more. And so they have all of this stuff to do. But when that sun sets, time's up. 
Stop playing. No more. Stop working on whatever you're working on. It's a Sabbath. And so they're rushing and they get him down. They get him in, into, the, into the tomb. Verse 55. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Okay. We see where he was laid. You know, you go in there to any of the tombs and there's like a little bed made. And then where the head is, they'll, they'll chisel away where the head would rest and where the feet would go. This is part of the reason they, they discovered this, they excavated this site and they discovered this location. And when they went in there, they saw that there, there are two beds, like it was for a husband and a wife and a second room for the rest of the family. Everything else is untouched. Of the two beds, there's one section that's chiseled out. But we don't, we don't know. And I'm not trying to sell you on this. I'm trying to let you understand what was going on here. And so they get him laid down there. They have everything prepared. The women look in and they say, okay, that's where he is. Verse 56. Then they return and they prepared the spices and perfumes for his body. But on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. They ran out of time. They couldn't finish what they were doing because the Sabbath had started. So they rested. They worshiped and, and enjoyed the Sabbath as they were supposed to. And in verse 20, chapter 24, verse 1, we get to the resurrection story. What Easter is all about. We really should celebrate Easter every day. But on the first day of the week, see right there, first day of the week, we still celebrate it. We go to work on Monday. If I was setting up the calendar, I'd say, well, Monday is the first day of the week. The resurrection changed everything. It affected our calendars, everything. But on the first day of the week, Sunday... At early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing spices, which they had prepared. So they have their spices. They're like, okay. They're weeping. Like from the other accounts, if you read Matthew, Mark, and and John, these women are basically hysterical. Jesus has been killed. They're in grieving. If you've ever experienced somebody die, you know the feeling that they're experiencing. If you go to other cultures outside of America, we are very subdued in our, in our weeping. In this culture, they would have been just very obvious that they were in sadness. Probably up all night. And they finally see the light starting to come up. The sun's not there yet, but the, the sky's starting to change colors. The Sabbath has ended. Let's go. We can go now. We're clear to go now. Let's get back to the tomb. Let's take our spices. Let's, let's get there and prepare the body. Verse 2, and they found this sto- the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of Lord Jesus. Okay. If they were a little upset at this point, <laughs> it just hit a whole new level of concern. Okay, before I read verse 4. See... We have to read all of the accounts of the Gospels because you get like a way better story. Each author has like its own, his own reason and his own slant to how he's telling the story. But before we read verse 4, John, he talks about these women getting there. They're upset. Now, somebody's going to appear to them and start asking them questions. In John's account, we're told that they believed that they were like the gardeners and start asking them questions. And they are like freaking out at this point. Like they are not in the mood for any jokes or games. They think that the gardener like moved the body for weed whacking or something. And they're like, we are not in a mood for this. And then they finally start understanding that these are angels that they're speaking to. But Luke just kind of says it, you know, without going into all the drama. In verse four, we read, while they were perplexed about this, Perplexed about what? They're perplexed that the body of Jesus is gone. That they look in, that's where they laid him. It was clear there's linens there. Um, Some have suggested that the second miracle happened, that a single guy folded some clothes up. Because we read that part of his clothing was folded up in a nice little setting there. So they're scratching their heads trying to figure out what's going on. They're perplexed. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. 
Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. So these angels are speaking like, don't you remember? What are you guys so confused about? And if we were to go back to Luke chapter 18, verses 32 through 33, this is like the last point we covered as we've been working through Luke. We fast forward here today. But Jesus tells them, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be buried and then I'm going to rise again. All through Jesus's teaching, he tells what's about to happen, but they missed it. And the angels are looking at him. Why are you looking for him? Don't you remember all the stuff he said? He said he was going to be killed and he said he was going to rise on the third day. It's the third day. You come here with spices like you're going to prepare a body. What's going on? And when they said that, he's like, oh, yeah, he did say that. He did, didn't he? Okay, well, we're out of here. Verse nine, and they returned from the tomb and reported all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary, the mother of James. Also, the other women were telling these things to the apostles. I have to, for the sake of those who are like me and I, my created word, skeptimistic. It's not one word, but I've taken two brilliant words and I've merged them into one. Skeptimistic, skeptical and, pes- and a pessimist. I am both of those and I call it skeptimistic. You read this and you say there are conflicts in the Bible. Matthew only records men going to the grave. Now, the reason is, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience to show that Jesus is indeed the Messiah who has fulfilled prophecy. In that day, women had no vote. They had no legal say. They could not testify in court. And so he records it from a legal case. The first people legally that saw were the men that could testify that they saw the missing body. Luke is a Gentile. He doesn't really care all about that. He's just trying to get the facts together about exactly what happened. And so here the women come. They see that he's gone. They rush back to the apostles. Verse 11 Okay, uh, to the other women, they were telling these things to the apostles, verse 11. But the words appeared to them as nonsense. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Have you guys ever had somebody tell you that somebody was died and then they they were suddenly alive? And how would you feel? Like even today as Christians, it's okay to like, this is a little, this is a hard thing to kind of grapple with. That God became man, then he lived a perfect life, then he died, and then he rose again on the third day. It just doesn't happen every day. This year... I want to make sure I'm not getting ahead of myself. We're in verse, where were we? 11? Okay, yeah, they seemed as nonsense. You don't start messing around with people that died coming back to life. You you just, like even, you don't even say that somebody's dead unless you're absolutely 100% without a doubt and you've verified it and and you've absolutely confirmed that the person is dead. This year, Bobby, who's with her family, her husband passed away in January. We all remember that. I'd been with them for like 40 hours at Palomar. Finally, it's like 3 in the morning. We'd all kind of decided that we were going to go home. We we each got, we all went home. I went to sleep. The the head nurse on call in the the trauma center at Palomar had my cell phone, and she was going to call me when he passed. I fell asleep. I woke up like somehow the call came through. I woke up, but I couldn't answer it in time. And then she left a message. When I checked the message, the lady said, this is so-and-so from Palomar Medical Center. Um, Pastor Hanson, we were here to let you know that L has expired. And um, so you can call the family to let them know. And I was still a little groggy. Cause I like, it was like, I'd been up for a long time and then I fell asleep for like 20 minutes. And then like that coming back up, it's like, okay, wait a minute. Let me listen to that message again, just to make sure I heard what I heard. So I listened to it again and I heard what I heard. So I called Bobby. I call Bobby, her grandson answers. 
And I say, hey, I'm really sorry, Billy, but your grandfather's passed. I just got a call from the hospital. Bobby said, okay, thanks. I'll let my grandma know. Like it, it was very expected. And almost a sense of relief. So then I decided, I'm like, oh, I should probably call the nurse back just to double check. And I call the nurse back. I'm like, hey, it's, it's Gunner. And, you know, I, I talked to, to Bobby and, and they know. And she's like, I've never seen anything like this. He expired. We called him. A doctor called him. And like 15 minutes later, he starts breathing again. And I'm like, yeah, he's stubborn, man. Like, I, like he, he is. He's a cowboy. He's like tough. He's tough stock. And then they called me again, and, and I had called Billy. That was a very interesting conversation explaining this. And then he passed. Like, then he passed. But when I got the call from a nurse, like, you get a call from a nurse, they don't just, like, like, they just don't call people to say, oh, your person's expired, unless they truly did expire. And then I call right away and go, are you kidding me? Like, I, I'm the one making the call to the family, and I just told them that he... And they're getting this information in verse 12, and they think it's nonsense because it is nonsense. People don't die and come back. We hear of these people see the light, they wander off, books are written. Dead is dead. Like 15 minutes, I don't really buy is dead. Three days after rigor mortis and all of the others, like there's some major stuff that happens like within a few hours, let alone days. And this is three days after the fact. This is nonsense. But verse 12, I love Peter. What does Peter do? Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Again, Luke, he missed another great story. This is one of the funniest stories in the whole Bible, in my opinion. If you go to John chapter 20, verses 4 through 8, you get kind of an expanded version. John was the youngest apostle at the time. Peter was the oldest apostle at the time. All of the apostles were killed for their proclamation that Christ was Lord. John, they tried to kill multiple times, but he only died of natural causes at the end of his life. He was, the tradition holds he was boiled in a vat of oil. He was exiled to Patmos. And he wrote his gospel at the very end. These other gospels had been written, and then he gives his account. And in his account, what he says is he describes the story just as it happens. But then Peter and the other apostle, the one who Jesus loved, who he's speaking of himself, they take off on a foot race. And I love it. They take off, and John writes, he gets right to the front door of the tomb. He's like, I beat the old guy, that Peter... It's like I got there, I smoked him in the foot race, and I'm like waiting, like, I mean, I brewed myself a cup of coffee, and it's like, hey, it's about time you got here, Peter. Glad you finally arrived. In Scripture, he's talking smack to the old apostle. I love it. But then when Peter gets there, John was afraid to, like, go inside because, you know, you get around where dead people have been, he gets kind of the hippy-jibbies and the cooties, all the bad stuff. That's why our law says that if you've, somebody's died in a home that you have to like reveal that to, to whoever when it's buying the house. Because we get the kind of, ooh, somebody died here. And so John's kind of like, I'm not going in there. It's dark. I can see stuff. Well, Peter, boom, right in there. Oh, here's his clothes. It's all, yeah, he is not here. And then John says, well, I went in there at that point. And he says at that moment, That's when it clicked for him, and he believed. He knew that he was risen. But Luke just just leaves us hanging on that funny story. So we'll pick up um, verse 13. Okay, and two of them, a different story. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all of these things which had taken place. So here you have these two disciples. They're walking along the road. They're like, man, that was just crazy. Man, Jesus, like, we saw him. He was dead. He, he was buried in the tomb. Man, they stuck that spike into his side. Clearly, he was dead. They wrapped him from head to toe in linens. They threw him in the thing. 
And now his stuff's gone. These crazy women are saying he's alive. It just makes no sense to me. Like, that's the story. They're kind of walking along, shooting the breeze. And in the midst of this, verse 15, we read, While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So as they're journey along, they're talking about their stuff. Jesus shoots out of the bushes. They don't recognize him as Jesus. And he's just like, hey, hey, what are you guys talking about? What's all this stuff you guys are mentioning? Verse 17, and he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. They're like, are you kidding me? Like, who is this heartless guy? Everybody knows about Jesus and his death and that his body's gone. This guy just walks up like he's hurting our feelings. But it gets worse. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, did you just fall out of the turnip truck? Like, what kind of knucklehead are you? That's my version, but it says, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which happened here in these days? To the very guy, they're talking to Jesus who was buried, who rose and is now walking with them. They don't realize it's Jesus and they're asking the one person that all the news is about. Like, where have you been? How did you miss this? And Jesus said to him, what things like this is like God has a total sense of humor and I love it. No, no, no. I've been here for a long time. What's, what, what are you talking about? Did I miss something important? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word in the sight of God and all people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death. And crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he, the Messiah, who was going to redeem Israel. Redeem Israel from what? Submission to Rome. They were ready for the Messiah to come, which is all foretold that there is going to be another coming. And Christ is not done with Israel. But they fast forward through history. They thought he was going to redeem them at that moment. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that if they had, they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and they found it exactly as the women had also said. But him, they did not see. They said, hey, they went to the tomb. They investigated. They were going to prepare. It was gone. We went to the tomb. His body's gone. But we, nobody's seen him yet. They're talking to him. They don't realize it. Nobody's seen him yet. And verse 25, we read, And Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They have no idea who this is. Just some guy. Where were you? What? What happened? Says, Guys, this is supposed to happen the whole time. Now, I don't know if they keep walking. Or if at this point they kind of stopped on the side of the road. When he mentions the scriptures, what's he talking about? The New Testament's not there. They have the Old Testament. He said all of these things are in the Old Testament. Where would he sit down to begin teaching? Now, it doesn't tell us. But one of the places, I want you to go with me to Isaiah 53. One of the great prophetical books of the whole Bible. Isaiah was written some 800 years before Christ's coming. He foretold of Israel being taken captive by, oh man, I'm blanking on the north. It's like, I'm going to shoot Assyria, maybe Babylon. One of, one of those two. The north was taken over and I'm blanking on the two countries. 
And Brett's not looking at me there. <laughs> Did he foretell Babylonia? Do you remember Babylon? Everybody's on the top pop quiz. He's like, man, I'm just trying to come to church, enjoy church. Why are you? <laughs> we well, studied Isaiah, and it's a fascinating book. And I believe that Jesus, as he's sitting down, this has got to be the best Bible study of human history. There are three people, two dudes and Jesus. And Jesus is explaining from the very beginning of the Old Testament, uh, through all of the prophets, everything that was foretold of him. And I think one of the places he would have had to have gone is Isaiah 53. And here it says, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty. Jesus didn't look like a bodybuilder with long flowing hair like Fabian or whatever that guy's name is. It's been used in Pantene commercials. What? Fabier, whatever. Fabio, Fabier, whatever. He had no stately form. He wasn't good looking. He was... He was just your average Jewish man that we should look upon. Okay, let's read. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced. What? This is 800 years. They're reading this. And as they get to this line, he was pierced through for our transgressions. The two guys on the right, they had their legs shattered, but not Jesus. He was pierced in the side through his ribs. Not a bone was shattered. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, you and me, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Wait a minute. We have to stop here. His grave was assigned with the wicked. On his left and right stood condemned criminals, those that deserved the death penalty. Yet he had no crime, no sin that deserved this. It says, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, took Jesus from these criminals and placed him in a wealthy man's grave. Skeptics say this can't be accurate. There is no way that this was written 800 years before the death of Christ. That all changed in, I think, 1967. 48. 1968? 48. 48. Whatever. Before my, before my time. Down by the Dead Sea, these shepherd boys are throwing rocks like boys throw, and there's a big cave, and they throw a rock, and it hits some sort of pot. They hear something shatter. When you go to Israel, you can go, and you can stand in the spot where they were throwing rocks and see the caves. They pull out the stuff, and they think, whoa, 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 these are important writings. They take it to scholars, and scholars verify, man, this 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 is from... From like 400 years due to the Maccabean era of Israel, of Israeli's like history. And in those writings, they find the book of Isaiah from 400 years before Christ. It's 99.999 out to infinity accurate. And guess what passage is there? This passage. His grave was assigned with wicked men. 
Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, for we are guilty. He will see his offspring and he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Paul, the great Hebrew scholar, writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Verse 12, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now back to Luke chapter 24. I can't help but to think that Jesus, in his hidden state, going through this Bible study with these guys, shared within that chapter. And they're like, aha, I should have had a V8. Like, it's all right there. It's all right there. And so then verse 28 of Luke chapter 24, and they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. The two guys are like, okay, we found our houses Jesus says, oh, I got to keep going. I'm going to wherever. He acts like he has to go further, messing with them. Verse 29, but they urged him saying, stay with us, for it is getting toward the getting toward evening. And the day is now nearly over. There was no Motel 6 back then. Nobody left the light on for you. Any hotel, it was a brothel. Like it wasn't safe. They said, it's dark. You've got to sleep somewhere. Sleep here. We'll take care of you. We'll give you food. There's no sense in you going on. So he went in to stay with them. And when he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, breaking it. That's Jesus is doing this. He began giving it to them. Now, I'm going to pause here. So the last time these guys would have heard, like, the Lord's Supper. Last time Jesus ate. He broke the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to them. This is my body will be broken for you. This is this is this wine is my blood, the new covenant. They didn't get a clue what he was saying at the Lord's Supper. Yet here in this moment, as Jesus comes back and he breaks the blood and he hands it to them right at that moment, verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished in their sight. They get it, and he's gone. If I was one of them, I'd be like, dude, slap me. No, slap me harder. <laughs> oh, I'm awake. I know we did. Did you see him? Man, now we're the crazy ones. Like, they just get to this guy's Jesus, and he's gone. So they're like, we're going nuts. What's happening around here? They said to one another, verse 32, were not our hearts burning with us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Was that the most intense Bible study we ever had? We missed it. And they got up that very hour. What was the very hour? What did they just tell Jesus? You can't travel at night. You've got to stop. It's dangerous out there. But when he appeared... They were willing that very moment. We got to get back to Jerusalem. We've got to travel back to let them know what just happened. And they returned to Jerusalem and they found gathered together the 11. (laughs) Judas had killed himself at this point. (laughs) 12 became 11. He'd felt guilty when he when he turned on Jesus. He didn't realize that they were going to kill him. And he went and hanged himself. So now there's 11 apostles. And those who are with him saying, I mean, they're probably sweating, out of breath. It's like, who knows, midnight. The Lord has really risen and it has appeared to Simon. 
they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized in them in the breaking of the bread. Let's put yourself in these guys' shoes. What is going on around here? What's in the water? First, the women go crazy, say he's alive and he's missing. Now these guys come back, say he's seen them. This is ridiculous. People just don't come back to life. And as they're like rolling their eyes saying, you guys, it's been a long week. You're mourning in your own special way and you're, maybe, you're, you're having visions. Like, why don't you guys just get a good meal, get a good night's sleep, and we'll talk in the morning. That's just my understanding. It's not, it doesn't say that here. But while they were telling these things, verse 36, he himself, that's Jesus, stood in their midst and said to you, Shalom, peace be with you. Shalom. This wasn't like some super duper saying, this is you go to Israel today, Shalom. I think it's like, oh, I forgot, something, Maleka, Shaleka, Malone, no, something, blanking on it. It'll come to me at two in the morning. It says, Shalom. Hey, how you guys doing? I'm back. But they were startled and frightened. Yes, of course they were. And they thought that they were seeing a spirit. They're like, man, now we're all seeing this stuff. It's not real. And Jesus said to them, verse 38, why are you troubled? And why do your why do doubts arise in your hearts again? I think this is hilarious. They just they witnessed him get executed. They saw him get buried three days ago. Now, suddenly he doesn't knock on the front door in their conversation. Jesus just appears. Hey, why, why are you guys looking so distraught? What's going on? It's like the witty comments you could say to Jesus that they probably didn't do. They're freaking out. He's dead. And he addresses this verse 39. See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself touch me and see for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Probably was Peter, because Peter's like the one that's confident. He's like, come, say, come touch me. Hey, it's, it's him. Check out his hands. And before we go on, Luke doesn't address it. Poor Thomas. Poor Thomas. For centuries, we've given Thomas a hard time. <laughs> Doubting Thomas. Like, he was afraid that, like, we treat Thomas like... You know, he was worried that he wasn't going to be able to eat breakfast tomorrow and God wouldn't provide him breakfast. And and that guy had no faith. Who here wouldn't have a little doubt if all your buddies suddenly told you that they saw somebody raised from the dead? And all he says is, I, I got to see him. from If he's alive, then I want to see him for myself. I want to touch his hands. I want to see his feet. We all would be in his shoes. And yet we give him such a heart. There are people who don't even want to name their kids Thomas because it's doubting Thomas. Give the guy a break already. So they're all like touching him. They're marveling. They couldn't believe it because of their joy and amazement. And Jesus's belly starts like grumbling. He says to them, hey, have you guys got anything to eat? It's hard work saving the world. I was killed. All your sin was placed upon me. It's been three days. I'm a little bit hungry. You guys get through this? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it with him and he celebrates this meal of fellowship. It's totally biblical to like have fellowships and food. It's the Christian thing to do. I can't wait till May 20th and we have our next fellowship and we have carne asada and a big old party. Well, we have food here today, but I, you know, we're getting too close to lunch. I shouldn't be talking about food right now. Verse 44. And he said to them. These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all these things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, the Old Testament. And he said to them, thus, it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. 
and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. He said, this has to happen. I had to be the lamb that would suffer the penalty so that you could have salvation, that you could have true shalom, peace with God and of God. And he said, it's going to start with Jerusalem. See, this is the sort of the overlap chapter of Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, 8, we see Jesus telling them, he says, right before he ascends into heaven, he says, but you will receive power. And when we receive power, you're going to be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the outermost part of the earth. It all started in Jerusalem. Verse 49, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you. But you are going to stay into the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He starts telling about what we would read in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, that the spirit would be poured out and the church would be established. And he led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, now I'm going to stop here. Luke leaves out another. He's going to pick it up in Acts. They're sitting there. Jesus gives them like the Great Commission, all of this stuff. And he starts floating into heaven like a balloon. And we're told that he's met in the air, like in the, in the clouds. Like he kind of dis- disappears. And you guys remember as a little kid or last weekend when you let the balloon up into the air and you watch it, you watch it, you watch it, it starts drifting. And eventually it gets so small that you can barely see it. But you, oh, I I see it still there. They're like doing that number. Like Jesus is all, he's gone. And all of a sudden two guys show up, angels. And they ask another funny question. What are you guys doing? Why do you look up in the sky? Jesus, the Lord, he just went back up into heaven. And they say, stop doing that. Go back to Jerusalem and wait. In verse 53, or verse 52, the second half, they, returned, they were worshiping him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. And, and that's where Luke kind of ends his first account. That's the story of the resurrection. And what's the point? What's the point of all this? And I'm going to end with Ephesians chapter 1. If you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm really going to end. I'm already past the gospel. The good news isn't about information of facts. You could know all of the facts in the world about the gospel, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried. He rose again on the third day. Most of us think because we're Americans, because we come to church a couple times a year, that that makes us a Christian, that we know enough about the facts. Knowing the facts isn't, that's not what gets you to heaven. That's not what gives you peace with God. It's about knowing the Lord. And in Ephesians 1.13, we read this, in him, that's Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, he says, okay, at some point you heard the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, according to the scriptures, for the payment of your sins. That's the facts. How is it activated? He goes on to say, and having also believed. That's the key. It's not doing a bunch of good works. It's not when you die that you've done more good than bad. You can never do enough good. Adding more good to bad doesn't make you good. But belief in Jesus that he made the ultimate sacrifice for you and that it was imputed to your account, that it was credited to you, not that you earned it, but that he gave it to you. Upon belief, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. This activation. See, I, have, I, I, I swallowed the juice. The iPhone 4S. Totally did. Right when it came out, I was like on the, I was on the, the had to wait for it to be shipped to me. With the, with the iPhone 4S, you can fly to the moon and back and you don't need anything else is what they advertise, right? One of the things, free Wi-Fi hotspot which my old phone did, but that was a huge selling point. Before I got the 4S, somebody had given me an iPad. Ann and I make our first trip up to Grandpa Hilton's house where we go once a month and we're driving back down. 
for the story. We'll say I wasn't driving. I don't know if I was actually driving or not. Kind of flip her the iPad when we get on the i5. We're like, hey, we'll just fire up the phone, give you a little mobile hotspot, and you can just surf the net till you get sick to your stomach. And so we dial it all up. We get, okay, act, boom, boom, boom. all of a sudden it's like, boom. If you want to activate the mobile hotspot, you need to contact your carrier. I'm like, this can't be right. I already had it. You call them up. They're like, sorry, sir, it is. But the phone you had had a special on it, and this is not a special. You've got to pay X amount of dollars if you want to activate that feature. I was angry. You guys told me the iPhone could do everything. And it can with a price. (laughs) But I wasn't willing to activate that feature. And I can tell you that Christ has died for each one of you. And he loves you immensely. And he's paid the price for your sin. But the way it's activated is through belief. And I know it's a difficult decision because it seems like nonsense. And I'm going to end here, but I want to tell you, we have some case for Christ. The first service took most of them, but there's enough out there. I got to order some more. But we as a church buy these books as a gift to those who want them or your friends. Lee Strobel is a journalist. He used to do courtroom scenes. He would study them he would give all the legal facts about how a criminal case was going he worked for the chicago tribune which is one of like the leading newspapers in the nation and his wife became a christian and he was furious he felt like he got the bait and switch and so his solution was to disprove christianity because if he could disprove christianity then his wife would have to unconvert and they could go back to their old lifestyle and this guy didn't take it lightly. He found all of the leading scholars on, from skeptics to believers on both sides. He funded his journey back and forth all around the world interviewing these people. And at the end of the day, the evidence of the resurrected Christ was overwhelming to him. And he's a pastor now. And his friend said, what did you do with all that information? He's like, that's just my personal study. <laughs> It's just for me. He's like, you need to publish everything you did. And that's where the case for Christ came. So he goes through both sides. And I heard recently, Alistair Begg, the guy who I love to hear preach, he sounds like the guy from, you know, the Golden Charms, you know, Lucky Charms. That's right, not Golden Charms. I'm getting Lucky Charms. The little leprechaun. He sounds like he's preaching at you. And he said something. He's like, You get this book, and it's worth your investigation. And as you start reading it, and as you start investigating it, before you know it, the scales have turned, and you realize that you're being investigated, and your life is being put on the spotlight before God. And it condemns you for your sin. It shows you that we've fallen short, and we miss the glory of God. And then it tells you the good news. That Jesus came and he was your substitute. That he paid the price for you. And all you have to do is believe. And then he begins changing your life. And so Father we thank you and praise you this day. This Easter celebration Lord. I thank you for the good news of Christ. We thank you Lord that he came. That he paid it all. Father I pray for those in this room Lord. Who are still wrestling through the facts of the gospel. I pray that you would help them Lord on their journey that they would come to faith. And Lord, I pray for all of us, Lord, who have trusted in Christ, Lord, that you would help us to continue to believe in you, that we would walk with you, Lord, that our lives would be pleasing to you. Lord, I long to run this race in such a way that when I stand before you after my death, to hear you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, help us in our journey. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.